Hello and welcome to Business Bites, the new Denton's podcast series. Here we offer short, insightful episodes you can listen to on demand, whenever and wherever you like. Sharing insights from across multiple markets, Business Bites takes a look at the solutions helping to address the challenges companies are currently facing. In short, it's tailored at serving you up a recipe for success. In today's episode, we're going to focus on a topic that has taken centre stage in policymaking and industrial strategies, as well as in the minds of many citizens across the globe, and that is sustainability. We're joined by Denton's partners Jean-Nicolas Maillard and Yves Boltman, and Business Development Manager Grace Smoother, each with a focus on EU competition law. Grace, Jean-Nicolas, Yves, welcome and thank you for joining us today on Business Bites. Grace, over to you. Thank you, Mirren. Over the past few years, starting with the Paris Agreement five years ago, and most recently with the ambitious goals set forth by the EU and its proposed Green Deal, we've seen the world is gradually waking up to the urgency of climate change and the preservation of biodiversity. And perhaps the current pandemics also generated further debates about the need to take action. Here at Denton's, our lawyers are increasingly confronted with demands from organizations looking into how to redefine their business practices and working styles in order to align themselves with these ambitious, sustainable development goals. Even Jean-Nicolas, as EU competition law practitioners, you've recently been sensitized to the issues concerning sustainability and biodiversity. Can you tell us how this challenge came into your space and why it's become increasingly significant in your practice of law? Thank you, Grace. In fact, it is our clients who've been the main driver behind our thinking. Over the past two or three years, uh, we've seen that environmental issues have become key corporate governance and ethics topics for companies. So we've seen companies, for instance, creating chief sustainability officer positions to drive the change in, in their own organizations. And the fact is that this phenomenon has not only been prompted by intergovernmental and EU initiatives, but it's been driven more importantly by consumers, citizens, stakeholders who increasingly demand that from corporations. So in short, we as citizens expect companies to engage in the debate. And we want, we demand to see concrete results, innovative techniques to produce with much less carbon content, measures across the supply chain to ensure sound environment protection practices. And companies are increasingly conscious of the need to be accountable and transparent about how they will address climate change. And if I try to say differently, companies are now expected to demonstrate that they're not part of the problem, but part of the solution. However, so far, what we've seen, our experience shows that while pressure is rising and the clock is ticking, companies do not necessarily have the recipe and the know-how to engage in this zero emission journey together. Yes, and, and I agree with Jean-Nicolas, and I think this is where competition law comes, comes into play. Driving change alone without industry-wide coordination and alignment on those aspects is not only risky and prone to, to failure, but also inefficient and costly. Faced with the urgency of the situation and the lack of know-how and experience, many industries turn to trade associations for guidance or tackle this challenge through joint efforts, joint collaboration or joint ventures. Also, addressing climate change requires requires innovation, new or different processes, and, well, you know, reshaping the, the level playing field. By doing things together, hopefully industries can solve problems faster, they avoid the free riding problem, and they're capable of generating tangible results more quickly. 
And you know, let me take you to two, two ways in which this happens. First, trade associations have a key role to play to develop gold standards, to you know, essentially create the new rules of the game, the new playing field. They are also called upon to design environmental milestones and KPIs to show how the industry is really doing its job in progressing in meeting sustainability goals. Uh, the second way or the second form through which this happens is really through joint collaborations or industry coalitions, so to speak, which can really bring the necessary capital to make the investments in a collective way into developing new green technologies. And, you know, a prime example of that is, is the recent uh, EU investments that we've seen in batteries for electric vehicles. Right. So I take your point that um, the scale and magnitude of the sustainability challenge requires that industries get freedom to collaborate, but without running the risk of being subject to antitrust scrutiny and enforcement in Europe. So Eve, what has been your experience so far and what do you think should really change in order to make EU competition law, let's say, fit for the European Green Deal agenda? Our experience to date shows that EU competition law can have a, a chilling effect on ambitious efforts for industry to address climate change and face the biodiversity challenges. And in our view, these effects can either impact the speed at which cooperation happens or the scale or depths of such collaboration. And, you know, let me take an example from, from recent real life. Recently, we, we were advising a trade association that was leading the charge on, on defining new environmental standards for its members. They were looking into the supply chain and they really wanted to change the way they were producing their respective products. But in order to drive a meaningful discussion on defining a code of conduct, well, you know, you need to have a little bit of experience sharing. You need to show to your peers what sort of experiences, challenges you have been facing within your own supply chain. Of course, this information is quite sensitive because it relates to your own way of producing the goods. And that can be a problem from an antitrust perspective if it is you know, shared in a way that is not disciplined. Hopefully, the, the industry uh, trade association had set up firewalls to avoid uh, spillovers and avoiding that the information be, be shared freely between the members. Once you gather that kind of experience, the next piece is really to get into the discussion around the best practice. In the course of those discussions, you know, questions will be about, are we sufficiently inclusive? Are we sufficiently transparent? Are we involving all the actors in the supply chain in a way that really we will gather sufficient adherence, adhesion, or you know, support for, for what we are trying to do? Finally, once you have written the code of conduct, pressure will be on to come up with results. You know, how... How is the industry basically abiding by the code of conduct? Are they doing something? And this is where we see a necessity on the part of some, some industries to have those codes of conduct becoming quasi-binding, where you will want to have measurable benchmarks and you will want to make sure that these guys are really measuring how they are implementing the best codes of conduct, the best practices into the supply chain. And of course, this information will have to be collected and then it will have to be compiled and then it will have to be shared with stakeholders to show NGOs, governments, that the industry is doing its part to solve the problem. Walking through these issues, you can see that there are multiple hoops and multiple areas where antitrust comes into play. Information exchange, devising the code of conduct, and clearly what we see is that the reaction on the part of the industry in that specific instance was very positive, but some industry players were quite worried about how their discussions would be seen and making sure that you know they would not be free as basically hindering the competitive process or, you know, creating roadblocks or barriers to entry. 
Yes, that's absolutely right, Yves. Thank you. We, we've seen that in a number of, of occasions, indeed. And the core of the problem, really, that we're dealing with is that we have two worlds apart. We do not talk to each other anymore. I mean, if you recollect, before 2004, companies which were embarking into a, an ambitious collaboration of a certain scale could go and see the authority. They would go and see the European Commission and notify the collaboration agreements. And then they would get a comfort or a guidance from the authorities as to how they were meant to conduct that particular collaboration. And in 2004, there was this reform that switched the notification system to a self-assessment system. So for now, more than 15 years, companies and trade associations have been basically left on their own to self-assess the compliance of their projects. Now, nowadays, they have limited scope to test their cases directly with the enforcers and to get the necessary level of legal certainty that their projects need. Of course, uh, the European Commission has not been entirely silent. They have provided guidelines on horizontal collaborations, which are definitely welcome and have proved useful in many cases. But having said that, you know, guidelines by nature, uh, they can also be rather vague on certain aspects or for impractical or not matching the term of the project that you are uh, analyzing. And then at the end of the, of the day, the companies are left on their own to decide whether they go ahead or not in what, what form. If I look on the other side, on the enforcer's side, the introduction of self-assessment also means that they themselves have had limited exposure and experience in dealing with those types of collaboration. And they are missing out on the chance to have a more open dialogue with the industry to validate their approach and their doctrine. And on the lawyer's side, for their part, basically they are consequently faced with limited case law because you don't have these clearance decisions anymore on this type of projects. And often lawyers would tend to remain a little bit cautious about these collaborations. And I would say particularly in industries where that were subject to significant cartel enforcement in the past. So this is really this lack of dialogue and cross-fertilization between enforcers and, and industry that in my view creates misinterpretations and misconceptions on both sides. So yeah, I agree with Jean-Nicolas. On top of that, the substance of the, the antitrust assessment uh, that is conducted by antitrust regulators, but also companies, gives significantly more weight to what is immediately and, and easily quantifiable. The efficiencies flowing from the corporation, you know, typically they have to be immediate, quantifiable, and to some degree passed on to consumers. So in, in effect, in order to be cognizable, this is what they need to be able to demonstrate. So in short, the focus is, is really on what economists can observe and measure in the short term. By contrast, less emphasis in the assessment is given to longer term, more qualitative gains or gains that are not really product specific. For example, you take a banana that is produced with less carbon and or preserving biodiversity, you know, it will likely be nutritionally equivalent to bananas that are produced under less environmentally friendly processes. Yet a code of conduct or an industry practice intended to reduce imports or reduce supply of certain products because they are arguably more carbon intensive would be seen as output limiting and potentially generating price increases. You know, the sort of things that antitrust regulators are particularly concerned about. The carbon benefits uh, that is projected or resulting from that corporation or that industry code will not necessarily be treated as capable of overriding or offsetting the, the perceived harm. Thank you, Yves. Now, given the unique challenges we're facing as a society and the EU's ambition to become the first carbon neutral continent, what do you both think that competition enforcers should be doing? If we want more ambitious collaboration, we're going to need more, more legal certainty for the company. 
companies which embark into this, uh, this journey. And, and Grace, let me clarify straight away, we're not advocating for a revolution of, of any sort. I think the, the core antitrust principles are sound, the existing rules are probably adequate. But our concern is not about the rules themselves, it's more about how they're applied and understood by the enforcers and by the industry. And in some, the enforcers need to be prepared to take bolder steps with particular industry initiatives. But above all, what they first need to do is set the right policy tone. And we need to narrow the gap and, and generate more debates to bridge the possible misconception that we talked about earlier. So, and I agree with Jean-Nicolas, you know, the, the early signs from, from enforcers are encouraging and quite positive. Uh, while initially tepid, it appears that you know, the European Commission and the stakeholders are willing to engage in the policy debate. Earlier this year, the public consultation on the EU horizontal guidelines that govern information exchange, standardization, and, you know, the innovation joint ventures we've talked about revealed that, you know, stakeholders are expecting a new policy direction and a more positive stance on environment cooperation. And further, the COVID-19 crisis has shown that enforcers, both at EU level and in the member states, are really prepared to give guidance in particular cases through comfort letters. Yes, absolutely. And I think this is a welcome development indeed. And maybe that dialogue that was missing, maybe it's, it's back now. We can only hope that it's back for good and that this approach that we saw under the COVID-19 crisis would be extended and become the new normal. So as you said earlier, Jean-Nicolas, if not calling for a revolution, then I guess we could say the question you're really driving at is how can EU competition law enforcement make a positive contribution to climate change and biodiversity? And in that spirit, I understand the two of you will launch a series of events in the fall to generate more debate on that question. Yes, that's right. Uh, thank you, Grace. Jean-Nicolas and, and I have been cooking a series of four events to foster more dialogue and play all part, uh, you know, in building bridges between the enforcers and the industry. And, you know, each event will take the form of a roundtable discussion where the industry and associations will be able to share their experience and the sorts of issues that they've been grappling with in recent times, while, you know, enforcers will be able to react and also share their own position on, on you know, where the policy is going to go. Okay, wow. That's certainly a very interesting and exciting menu you've prepared for us. I really look forward to those events. And for those tuning in, more information will soon be available on Dentons.com. Jean-Nicolas, Yves, many thanks for taking the time to discuss with us what's been on your plate. Thank you very much, Grace. Thanks. Thank you. See you again soon. Thank you, Grace, Jean-Nicolas and Yves. That gives us some real food for thought and we appreciate you joining us today. To our listeners, we hope you'll join us next time on Business Bites when we make a return to employment-related topics, discussing collective redundancies during the COVID-19 crisis. Thank you and stay safe.